Hi, my name is Max, and I know that I am now a clearly a middle-aged man. I know this because I attended a couple of weddings yesterday, and at the second wedding, the reception was in a barn with hard surfaces and a DJ with four speakers. And I was sitting across a circle table. I know this because I was a musician when I was younger. And I don't know if you know this, but there's a correlation between being in a band when you're young and doing this a lot when you're middle-aged. Huh? 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 So I, I found it hard to hear, and I found myself at the wedding reception going, yes, Jenny and I live in Nicholasville. Nicholasville. <gasps> over the DJ, over the sound. Um, I appreciate the fact that Generations Community Church's facility is carpeted. Look down. This carpet does well in classrooms and in this room when we're sitting on the table with each other because middle-aged guys like me can hear. Now, there is an affliction that hits men of a certain age, and it's called selective hearing loss. Usually at age 60, a wife will say to her husband, did you just hear what I said? Are you listening? And the husband will say, huh? Now, I'm told that this can afflict younger men. <laughs> Don't look at the person next to you. <laughs> I'm told that this can afflict younger men, okay? So how many of you, show of hands, how many of you have been with a family member or a friend or a coworker who simply wasn't listening to you? Show of hands. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's a lot of hands. What are some of the cues that they were giving to you that they weren't listening? Just shout some things out. Play guys glazed over. What was that, Ivan? What? Yeah, right. <laughs> what? Yep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The uh-huhs. Yeah, these are good things. Listening, listening is actually linked to caring. Listening is linked to caring. And so we're going to start off today's message with a pop quiz. Hold up your two hands. You have 10 fingers, hopefully, hopefully, okay? We're going to do 10 questions, true or false. And for every, for every false response to a question, take away a finger, okay? So question number one, question number one, my close friends would describe me as a responsive listener, true or false? If, if you, if the, nice, nice, nice. I was just asked what we're supposed to do. So again, again, uh, for every false answer, take away a finger, okay? You can do this in your head if you're afraid of the person sitting next to you, okay? So my close friends would describe me as a responsive listener, true or false. When people are upset with me, I am able to listen to them without being defensive. True or false? I listen. This is a good moment to look at me. Look at me. If you are married, if you are married, I implore you, do not look at your husband or wife. Look at me. I listen not only to the words people say, but also to the feelings behind their words and body language. True or false? I have little interest in judging other people or quickly giving my opinion, true or false. I am able to validate another person's feelings with empathy, 
True or false? I am aware of my defensive mechanisms in stressful situations. Many of us, because of our family of origin, can be people pleasers, appeasers. We can just ignore what's being said. We can blame the other person or we can, oh, look, there's a bird. We can kind of change the conversation because it's stressful to us. Aware. I am aware of my, that's right, just awareness, just awareness. I am aware of, you may not be doing anything about it now, just a general, we're baby steps, team, baby steps. I am aware of my defensive mechanisms, okay? I am profoundly aware of how, my, how the family I was raised in has shaped my present listening style. I am profoundly aware of how my, uh, the family I was raised in has shaped my present listening style. Question eight, we're almost done. I ask for clarification when listening rather than fill in the blanks or make assumptions. Again, true or false. I ask for clarification when listening rather than fill in the blanks or make assumptions. I don't interrupt my point to get my point across when another person is speaking. True or false. I don't interrupt. And then I believe last question, I give people my undivided attention when they're talking to me. True or false. I give people, okay, so you can put your hands down. So here's how it shakes out. If you have, if you had eight or more fingers left, uh, you're doing really good, outstanding. If you have six to seven fingers, very good. If you had four or five fingers, that's not too shabby. If you had zero to three fingers, hi, my name is Max, and I'm so glad you're here today. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I believe that Jesus was a good listener. I believe that Jesus was a good listener, and I believe the world would see Christians differently if we were like Jesus and we also were good listeners, okay? Imagine for a moment, you know all the things that people say about Christians. They're judgmental, they're this, they're hypocritical, like there's all these labels, but what if it were the case that when it came to Christians, people just said, man, I think they're crazy about that whole Jesus rising from the dead on the third day stuff. But man, when I'm with a Christian, I feel heard and I feel seen. What a difference it would be, okay? So my bottom line today is pretty simple. Listen incarnationally. Listen incarnationally. Um, this means, by the way, to listen at a heart level and to be attuned to not just the words, but the nonverbal cues that the other person is giving you through their body language so that the other person feels felt by you, okay? And the goal here is emotional connection, not an exchange of information. The goal is an emotional connection. Now, again, today's message is lifted in entirety from Peter and Jerry Scazzerzo's work in the course, Emotionally Healthy Relationships. This whole teaching series is from that course because we could all use some skills development when it comes to being emotionally healthy in our relationships. At Christmas, we will read this passage from Isaiah in the seventh chapter. Uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, and it kind of culminates with, the word Emmanuel, God with us, okay? And that's what theologians call the incarnation. The incarnation is the God with us thing that happened in human history. 
And there's several things about the incarnation. It meant that Jesus left his world to be with us in ours. Not sure what that looks like? Read Philippians 2. He gave up a lot. Jesus entered our world. He came as a baby. He had to learn to walk and talk. One of the things I find most fascinating because of my personality and my strengths and weaknesses is that when I encounter Jesus in the Gospels, he was never rushed and he was never distracted. Isn't that fascinating? Even though he had crowds and throngs and all of this stuff going on, he, he was never rushed and never distracted. Jesus remained himself when he entered our world. He was constantly, I and the Father are one. In John, John tells us that Jesus knew where he had come from and where he was going, and so he took up a towel and basin and he washed the disciples' feet. He never lost his identity in entering our world. And then Jesus lived between the two worlds. There are some differences between heaven and earth. Let me say that again. There are some differences between heaven and earth. This is where you should say amen. Amen. It's why we pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because things aren't the way they should be, okay? We're going to be in John's gospel today in the first chapter, uh, a part of the gospel that we're typically in at Christmas time. And so I want to read the entire passage, and we're going to focus with kind of laser quality in one verse, all right? And if you want to close your eyes to listen to the scripture today, you can. I'm going to read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth or resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we've all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. You can open your eyes for those of you that were. So we have four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about the external things of Christmas, shepherds, mangers, Zachariah and Elizabeth, the pregnancy, all of those kind of details, the journey to Bethlehem. 
John gives us a different perspective in his gospel. If you'll recall, John was Jesus' best friend. At least that's what John thinks. <laughs> we'll have to ask Jesus when we see him face to face, right? Was it really John? Tell us. We need to know. <laughs> but John, John was Jesus' best friend. And so John, in his gospel, he wants you to see Jesus for who Jesus really is. And in the first chapter, he's wanting you to see something about Jesus. And it really comes down to this verse in, in verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. The word became human. Jesus, who is the word, became enfleshment. In Latin and in Spanish, it's two words, incarnate, incarnate, okay, incarnation. In other words, Jesus isn't just a gifted rabbi from Nazareth. It's God with flesh and bone and skin and guts born in Bethlehem that night. God became one of us. Now, the second part of this is also important. So the word became human and made his home among us. That's the Emmanuel part, the God with us part. But the word there is really tabernacled. That's the word used in the Greek. God tabernacled with us. And so that's what God did on Christmas night. God tabernacled with people. And some of you would be like, what? I mean, I know there's a tabernacle in Wilmore and it doesn't have air conditioning. Like, what are you talking about? Okay, well, let me unpack this. Okay, John's wanting everyone to make a connection that just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was an outward sign that God was present with his people, the enfleshment God's son born of a virgin in Bethlehem is also an indicator that God is with his people. And it's from Exodus chapter 40, and I'll read these verses. Um, the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down and the glory of the Lord had filled it. Can you imagine just going into a storefront church or a Baptist church or a Catholic church, and the glory of the Lord is so whoa, there that you can't even enter? You're like, eh, I'm not going in there. <laughs> whoa right? In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was this huge tent filled with symbols. On the outside, there was the uh, bronze altar. There was the basin that you would wash yourself. So you had to sacrifice an animal just to enter. Then you had to wash yourself to be clean. And then inside the tent, there were three things in particular, uh, a, a table of presents, a mercy seat, and a giant candelabra of light. Um, but inside, there were all kinds of things. And so parents, uh, parents would tell their children during these days of, of the history of the Israelites, whoa, hey kids, stay away from the tabernacle. I know today's different, but when I was young, parents would let their kids just run anywhere. They didn't know. My mom didn't know where I was. Just go out and play, go out and play. But there were certain things she would tell me, right? Stay away from, stay away from this place. Stay away from this block. Stay away from this house. In a similar way, Jewish parents of the time would, you know, caution their children. And we know this from the literature. Uh, stay away from the tabernacle. It was a holy place. Um, Nahab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, were struck dead by God because they were showing up to do their priestly duties drunk. And God wasn't having it, Okay. 
So for many Israelites, it was kind of a, it was a cool place, but also a scary place, right? And of course, the Israelites were missing something important. Again, inside the tabernacle were three things. A seat, a table, and a candle. Guess what was in every Jewish home? A seat, a table, and a candle. God was wanting to say to them, I am with you in your daily life right where you are. I want to be with you. Now, the inside of the temple had, everything was overlaid with gold, the, 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 the mercy seat, the, the candelabra, um, all of the table of the bread of presence, all of it was overlaid with gold, but the outside kind of looked like something similar to this. This is a recreation over in the Holy Land today, right? When you look at that, when you look at the outside of the tabernacle, you don't think, wow, there's going to be a lot of gold inside that thing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't scream cool stuff inside, does it? It doesn't. It's very ordinary, very bland on the outside. So the inside of the tabernacle was gold and fine linen uh, and purple cloth. The outside was plain and ordinary. Are you picking up on this? The outside was plain and ordinary. The inside was glorious. John is saying the word became human. On the outside, it looks like just a little, just another baby. But on the inside, it's God becoming one of us, okay? The incarnation changes the story. Does God care? Is he involved? Yes. He entered our world, which is what we do when we're incarnationally listening to another person. One of the things I'm struck with is that sin and rebellion entered the world. God could have had all kinds of options to deal with them, deal with us, Nuke us, start over, all of the things you kind of think about. But God entered our world. God hears us. God gets us. God feels, in a sense, what we feel. Part of what we get in God becoming enfleshed in the incarnation is what the writer of Hebrews says. You have a high priest who is able to sympathize. He knows exactly what it means to be fully human. Okay? So let me ask a few questions in light of what John is telling us in the first chapter of his gospel. And the first question is this. As a kid, were you a good listener? As a kid, were you a good listener? <laughs> Second question. How did your family of origin speak to each other? Now, here, here's the tricky part. Here's what I want to suggest to you. How your family of origin spoke to each other gets internalized in you as a kid. And without even thinking or realizing it, it's how you in turn just speak naturally and engage naturally with other people. Uh, in my mom's family of origin, they were all Catholic, Italian, Italian Catholics. Any single uh, exchange or family gathering was them shouting over each other, calling each other names almost coming to blows about stuff. I mean, chaos. My dad's family couldn't be more different. When one person was speaking, everyone else was quiet. <laughs> it was like you had to, it's like you had to hold a totem or something. I have the speaking totem, you know, and everyone recognized it. It was just the weirdest thing. They couldn't have been more different. And that impacts you, right? So how did your family of origin 
speak to each other. And then lastly, in what ways are you tempted now to be distracted when you're with people? In what ways are you tempted now to be distracted with people? Now, I've got some ways to kind of practically develop your incarnational listening skill, okay? And these, again, are stolen shamelessly from Peter Scazzerzo. Number one, give full attention. If someone's speaking and you're listening, you're the listener, give them your full attention. M. Scott Peck says this, you cannot really listen while doing anything else. I had two men that were very important to me when I was young and in graduate school. Uh, one was Mark Knoll and the other was Lyle Dorsett, and they couldn't have been more different in how they listened to me. When I would go in to talk to Mark Knoll, uh, he had a manual typewriter in his office, and he would ask permission, but because I was scared of him, I would always say yes, whatever he, you know. He said, may I type while we talk? And I would be like, yes, yes, sir, you can. So while I'm trying to have a conversation with him, ding, that was my those were my conversations with Mark Knoll in those days. Lyle Dorset couldn't have been more different. He would want to go on a walk with me around campus, or he would want to get in a quiet place in an alcove somewhere, and he would sit across from me, Josh, and he had these eyes like Charles Finney, and he would just stare at me, and I was like, He's looking at my soul. I need to repent. Oh my goodness, he sees everything. Ah, <laughs> you know. So give full attention. And this means, by the way, putting away any screens that you have. I will admit, as your pastor, I sometimes fantasize about this about church. I would, we're not going to do this, but in my fantasy moments, I'd be like, I want to have a giant velvet box with slots that's at the back of the sanctuary. And as we all come in, we just slide our phone in one of the slots because what we're saying is we're gathering as God's people to hear God and hear one another and be together in God's presence. And so we're not going to be distracted by anything. <laughs> it's like a bike rack for phones. Exactly. All right. So give full attention. Number two, step into their shoes. This one's been harder for me, but when someone's talking to you, what, what must that have felt like, what they're describing to you? What must that have felt like? Have you been through anything similar? Now, here's the thing. If you've been through something similar, I'm not telling you to say, oh, I totally know what that is, you know, when I was seven, blah, 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 blah. No, no. I'm, I'm asking you to think about if you have a similar experience so that you can say, wow, you must feel crushed. Yes, yes, I do, right? I, so being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes means that you can name with accuracy really what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. And then number three, avoid judging or interpreting. My family's been bad about this. We, like, we just, we judge and interpret everything. We're, you know, that's what we do, right? Um, but avoid statements like, you shouldn't feel this way. Or let me tell you, I'm sure your dad, your husband, your boss, they didn't mean it. Like, don't interpret, don't judge, just let it be what it is, right? Your goal in listening to the other person, again, is to listen at a heart level so that the other person feels 
felt. And when we judge or we interpret what another person is experiencing, we tend to either shut them down for the people who shut down easily, or we tend to make them angry and they're now itching for a fight. Well, let me tell you why you're wrong now, <laughs> right? Both, of, both, both things are bad, okay? And then lastly, summarize what they said. This is going to sound weird and awkward and wooden, but summarize what they said. Josh, since you're in the front row, I'm picking on you a lot today. When your boss promoted Gary instead of you, man, you felt betrayed. You've been there three whole, three whole years longer at the bank, and Gary's only been there six months, and you've been doing all the extra trainings, all the extra Saturdays, and you feel like it's a giant slap across the face. Am I right? Am I hearing you right? And in that moment, that gives Josh permission to say yes or not exactly, and then he can clarify, okay? So when we, when we summarize what they've said, we're trying to get at what, they've, what they're conveying about what they feel or what they've experienced, okay? And you can always ask for clarification. When you're the listener, you can always say this, is there more? Is there more? And they'll tell you if there is. Now, if I can flip things for a moment, if you're the speaker and someone else is listening to you, it's helpful to know the difference between thoughts and feelings. We sometimes get them mixed up as Americans. So um, it's a, here's a helpful rule. Use the I think versus I feel rule. If you can substitute the words I think for I feel in a sentence, you've expressed a thought and not a feeling. Let me say that again. If you can substitute the words I think for I feel in a sentence, you've expressed a thought, not a feeling. We would never say, I think sad. I think devastated. We might say, I feel he's a jerk. No, what you mean is, I think he's a jerk. <laughs> and he may very well be a jerk, right? <laughs> but you're expressing a thought and not a feeling, okay? Now, again, in all of this, giving our full attention, stepping into their shoes, avoiding judging or interpreting, summarizing what they've said, in all of this, it's because we want to love other people well. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, oh, simple, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Love. And so I have learned that love listens. And love listens incarnationally because God shows us what that's like. Okay? Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets hang on these two commandments. I love the way David Augsburger puts it. I, I appreciate my Anabaptist brothers and sisters. Sometimes they just drop truth bombs like nobody's business because, you know, they're off doing peace or something like that, okay? So he says this, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Let me read that again. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. It's my hope and prayer for you 
that in your marriage, in your family, in the relationships here in your church family, with your coworkers, that you will experience incarnational listening and give incarnational listening.